Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about tools with the help of special guest Dave Frame, former editor of Tools of the Trade magazine. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Fowler, and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. You know, most of us in the remodeling and or building world love tools. In fact, maybe the reason we got into this business is because of the tools. Some of us love them a little more than others. So there are some of us who really need to have the latest and greatest, kind of like the iPhone craze where the people are lining up around the block just to get the latest thing, even though the one they already have is only six months old. And then there are some of us who just buy what we need to get by, but we still love having them. So it's no big surprise that the magazines and trade shows are out there to introduce us to the latest and the greatest. I think my first professional grade tool was actually a Sawzall. I remember very clearly my wife and I making a visit to a store and picking one up because I was just getting in the business and I thought I really needed a Sawzall. The next one I believe was a miter saw, which I still have. It's one of those heavy Makitas with the cast base on them. It takes you like three hands to pick up and move around, but I still have it. It still works very well. Can't do very much in terms of large stock, but it's still a pretty good thing. And then, well, you get the drift. I kept buying tools. So I'm amazed as I visit trade shows and look at magazines, how much tools are changing. It just seems like Every time I go to a show, there are new ones that are just improving on the old ones. Of course, there are ones that everybody wants us to buy that are just totally brand new. Some of it's the result of safety concerns like the saw stop. I visited a company a couple of weeks ago where they actually had a saw blade and a saw stop nailed to the wall just to reinforce to everybody how to be careful or to need to be careful with a table saw, but it did the job. It didn't take the fingers off. Some of these are the result of efficiencies like, I don't know the exact name, but I believe it's called the saw hood, which goes over a uh, miter box, drops all the dust and debris down into a box below, a whole lot less cleanup. And then there's all kinds of others and you can fill in the blanks uh, as you will. But one of the things that's really clear is that tool manufacturers want your money. So it's a great thing that tools are being tested, being tried out, being reported on, and being identified as being keepers of their promises or not. Kind of like Consumer Reports does for a lot of consumer products, the magazine Tools of the Trade does for our tools. So I'm really excited to have uh, on the podcast today a guy that has been involved in this testing and from all indications, has an extreme passion for tools. Tim, for me, this is probably one of the best topics we can talk about. I'm like a kid in a candy store. Every time we go to the trade show or even when I still go to the big box stores, the Home Depot, uh, I love looking at tools. I love uh, the new tools coming out. 
when I first started in construction, my had a cordless drill followed by like you, a Sawzall. Um, and as you're first starting out, there's that balance of managing, you know, your cash flow within investing in good solid tools that are going to last in the field. And, um, you know, that's not going to break you. So, uh, very interested to talk with Dave Frain. Dave spent 20 plus years as a carpenter, carpentry foreman, project manager before working as an editor for JLC and tools of the trade magazine. He currently works as a freelance writer, editor, and has provided tool and design related content to fine home building tools of the trade pro trade craft tool guy and core 77. Welcome to the show, Dave. Well, thank you very much. Hey, Dave, it's great to have you. I just wanted to comment on Steve's uh, comment about balancing the budget and the tools. I think my first Sawzall was $104 or something like that. And that just about blew my mind that you could spend that much money on a tool. And of course, nowadays, they can be a lot more expensive than that. So well, you've been involved in the tools and testing for a while now. And uh, obviously, you have a great passion for it. Give us a little rundown on how you got so engaged in the tool part of this business. Well, I mean, I've been into tools since I first handled a hammer and an old handsaw when I was like five or six years old. So I've been into it a long time. I went to work as a carpenter, worked as that for many years, and that gave me an excuse to spend a lot more um, <laughs> money on tools than I could if I was just, you know, uh, somebody working somewhere else. Um, and I just sort of fell into it as an opportunity. I did a story, some construction stories for um, something for fine home building in the mid-90s. Um, did some work for JLC and eventually kind of got moved into doing their tool column and uh, have done that on and off ever since. Well, that's really cool. So um, I know you were at Tools of the Trade for a while. And, and initially when we decided to have you on, that was that was my point of reference for uh, having you here. I'm just kind of curious, how did you guys do the testing that you did in a way that created non-biased feedback to the industry? Uh, that is, you know, that's an interesting question, and that's a really difficult thing to do. You know, you'd think in theory you could put a bunch of tools into the hands of uh, a bunch of carpenters and then interview them or get their information at, back, afterwards, which I'd done in the past when I was still working as a carpenter. Uh, I remember doing something with saw stand, um, miter saw stands and taking, getting 10 of them and bringing them to the job, site, job sites where I worked and letting other guys use them. Um, yeah. That worked fairly well because guys didn't have brand allegiances. But you get power tools. Interesting thing is it's really hard for, you know, even people who are professional carpenters to be real open-minded about it. I, yes. I did a test with somebody somebody once where a framing carpenter, I got him a bunch of um, newer nail guns. And in the end, he said, well, they're not, you know, he used Hitachi. He's a West Coast guy, and they all use this particular Hitachi that's been around forever. And it was kind of like, if it wasn't that, it wasn't any good. Um <laughs> Needless to say, I never did that story with him because it's just he didn't didn't give him a fair shake. You know, in my case, I guess I'm fairly brand agnostic. I mean, I've got senses about certain ones, but the cool thing about laying your hands on a whole bunch of tools is you get surprised sometimes. And I always like it when I'm surprised. I go in thinking, well, this will probably be pretty good. I don't know what I think about that other one. And then I'll use it and I'll say, oh, my gosh. Um, that just yeah. happened to me with a piece I did for fine home building on um, – uh, cordless impact drivers. I was not prepared to um, be a huge fan of Hitachi's uh, new, newer triple hammer, and I love the thing. Wow. Uh, you know, other things they thought it'd be pretty good were good. 
Um, yeah. So it's it's uh, it's nice to be surprised that way. Yeah. So speaking East Coast West Coast, I think this is a very cool discussion uh, about the difference in tools, and uh, probably the most noticeable one is the skill saw or the uh, worm drive versus the the side driven skill saws. But are there any other kind of East Coast West Coast? Um, differences that you've seen over the years? I think it's more a matter of brands. Okay. And also, I think it's more a matter of brands that are very strong. I mean, Hitachi nail guns have always been really strong. Here, you go to East Coast, you'll see a lot more um, Bostitch and Senko. You know, okay. I can't speak for the Midwest so well. I mean, yeah. the interesting thing about the Sidewinder worm drive thing is that was originally a distribution issue. It's just in the early days of power tools. Um, Worm drive companies had big distribution in the West and sidewinders had it in the East and it, and I think people's um, practices, you know, the, the ergonomics of using those tools are very different and right. practices developed in certain areas and they stuck. So, so that really wasn't a, an efficiency sort of driven thing, but distribution. Originally it was because there are only two companies making them. The original quarter cable was making a sidewinder that was distributed in the East. And uh, Skill was making worm drives that were used a lot in the West. We're talking like 1930s, 1940s. Right, right, yeah. And, you know, and and the way guys in the West will use a worm drive is they'll hold the board up on their foot, bend over and let the weight of the saw carry it through. Uh, right. Sidewinder guys tend more frequently to work up on sawhorses or something. Well, if you get used to doing the one, you don't want to switch to the other saw. Right, right. Oh, that's really cool. Now, that's something I never knew. I mean, I've been around this industry for 30 years or so, and that's a that's a tidbit that just uh, stands out for me. So, David, when well, you I, I've oh, lived in the mid, I've lived and worked in the Midwest and East. I didn't do carpentry in the West, but it was kind of a I guess it's an interesting thing you pick up from moving around a little bit. David, when you're doing a review to, for a tool, what are some what's some of the criteria you look at? And you know, for me, it was always important when you had a crew out there. Uh, to have them uh, outfitted with a good set of tools, tools that are going to last, not fail during the day. Uh, so what are some of the things that you look for in a tool when you're reviewing it? You know, I would love to be able to look for durability. I mean, you're obviously, you're correct about that. Um, nobody in the magazine world has the resources of a, um, um, you know, to fully test things in a lab like Consumer Reports. So I've seen tool reviews of theirs where they, had some good lab results, but they didn't understand how the tools were used. And, um, I think it's, um, I think it varies an awful lot by tool. I would think, you know, my sense is weight, size, ergonomics are very important performance for whatever it is. I mean, if I'm testing impact drivers, you know, I want the thing to be easy to control and I want it to put fasteners in real fast. Um, cordless, an interesting change in cordless is I remember when my predecessors at Tools of the Trade were first testing cordless uh, drill drivers. They test them by driving like one and one and five eighths inch drywall screws. Mm -hmm. I just did a story where I didn't do a runtime test because the things have gotten so good that um, there's just no way you're going to run. You know, you got a brushless tool and you got a five or six amp hour battery in it. It'd kill you. Yeah. Um, to to with to um, see what the runtime is driving normal size fasteners or cutting normal materials. I mean, I think a lot of things are going to become cordless. A lot of things already are cordless. We never thought would be cordless. Yeah. And I think in 10 years, you know, you can go, you're going to go on to job sites and the only corded thing you're going to see is the charger. Yeah. <laughs> 
pretty blown away to see a uh, cordless miter saw. That one was interesting. I've got a small one. I, I put my corded, my corded uh, miter saw is in my storage unit. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Who makes a cordless one? Well, I've got one that's um, a DeWalt, and it's a small one. It's a seven and a quarter inch. You know, they make 12 inch ones that are really big. Um, I'm in a shop where I've got a big paramatic table saw, so I don't really need a big um, uh, a big miter saw. But uh, Makita makes a few of them. Um, Milwaukee makes makes at least one. I want to say um, Ridget's got one. Wow. Um, I don't know if Metabo's. I think Metabo's got one. It's not heavily distributed in this country. Um, I, you know, everyone's gonna everyone everyone will have one pretty soon. So I know you've made some trips to some, uh, at least I believe you've made some trips to some factories and stuff like that to look at some of these things. Is that, is that true? I've been to a lot of factories. It was something I always enjoyed because I like to see where things come from, how they're made. So tell us a little bit about, about that, about going through a factory where they make tools. Well, the first one I talk about isn't actually tools, but it was probably one of the early factories I went to. And I arranged it myself because I was back in the Midwest visiting family for a family thing. And I arranged to go to Finko's nail factory outside of Cincinnati, which was just fascinating because they had this, you go into this giant, you know, few hundred thousand square foot building and they've got these giant coils that are probably six foot tall, six foot diameter of steel wire. Yeah. And they had them all these stacked in a huge area. I mean, the size of like, you know, a four or six car garage, if it was stacked full, all this steel. So this is, this is all this, this will all be turned into nails today. Wow. Um, and they, they had fairly, it was an old, that's an old factory and they'd run this stuff through dyes and bring it to a certain diameter. Um, they had a lot of really old machinery, but they, when the company, um, I don't know if they went bankrupt, but darn near did, they got bought out and they automated, they took a lot of old, they had got some new machines, but they took old machines and they updated them with like computer controls and stuff. And so they had, you know, wow. one guy be doing the work of what used to be five guys, you know, 15 years right. ago. Right. Um, I'm trying to think where else I've been. I've been to um, so, uh, a bunch of festival factories in Germany. Oh, no kidding. Uh, those were very, those were very interesting. About a year ago, I was at Metabo's factory in, in Germany, Southern Germany. And it, what was so interesting about that is it's total, it was almost totally integrated. I mean, they were doing injection molding for handles. They were winding motors. Uh, they were casting aluminum parts. I mean, usually those things had come in, you know, either from another right. factory or another supplier yeah. and they were doing just about everything in one location. That's amazing. So it just feels like there's been an acceleration in tools and innovation in tools, very much like building materials are just exponentially uh, improving as well as new products on the market. Um, what do you see kind of happening to the tool, the tool world in terms of innovation? Well, I think, you know, I said part of it before when I think more and more things going cordless and legitimately so. I mean, you can get um, SDS Max rotary hammers. There's DeWalt's making a table saw. A bunch of people are making miter saws. You know, nobody would have thought of those being cordless 15 years ago. Right. Um, other things, you know, a lot of the electronics and tools. Um, a few companies have got things where you can sort of perform diagnostics. You can disable them so you don't have, if you don't have the right code on your app, you know, somebody steals your, you know, your whatever tool, they can't use it. You can track location with these things. Um, in my sense, personally, those probably are more valuable to big outfit. You know, the kind of people who once upon a time would add a tool crib. Right. Um, except for the security aspect. Personally, you know, being able to disable them, yeah, that's kind of cool. Most of the other stuff probably wouldn't apply to a small operator. 
one of the tools that I think that's been given short shrift when I think about it is um, some of the lasers. Oh yeah. Uh, the line and level lasers. I mean, those things have been around. I remember, you may remember this. I remember being on job sites as a carpenter 25 years ago where a laser came in a suitcase, weighed about 75 pounds and cost 5,000 bucks. Right. Right. You know, you know, granted those are really big rotary lasers, but you can right. get rotary laser that probably do what those do for less than 500 bucks. Um, the smaller, you know, line and point lasers will do you a lot of really good stuff within 30, you know, 30 foot distance. And you can get those for 120 bucks. Um, and I'm surprised that every trades person doesn't own one of those. Right. Uh, right. So Dave, over the um, years, uh, tools have definitely improved. I mean, we're getting rid of cords, they're lighter weight, they're more efficient. Uh, but let's talk about safety when you're giving your tools to a a crew. The first time I started out in uh, carpentry, all of the tools were kind of, um, there were strings attaching to the guards so that it wouldn't come down and people were changing the tools to, you know, in essence, make them less safe. So how has that changed over the years and will that continue to get better? I think it probably will. And I know just what you're talking about, I remember having a landlord had taken the guard off his worm drive and it <laughs> yeah, would stand exactly. up on end while the blade was winding down and it yes. fell down once and shot across the driveway. Uh, I'd been on a job site where someone did the same thing on a newly laid hardwood floor. Oh my. Um, <laughs> we were not happy about that. I think that in part the tool companies have, you know, some of this has been legal stuff. They've gotten sued and they've made an effort to make these things better. I mean, the guards that you put on miter saws and whatnot, they work a lot better. You know, they've got right. clear, clear material. They automatically retract. I think they've made it easier in most cases to use the tools, you know, as intended. Whereas in the past, they stuck them on there and they, you know, they hadn't changed the design in 30 years. Do you um, think we'll ever, you do you think we'll ever see a time when every table saw has something like a saw stop on it? I doubt it because the interesting thing was saw stop was sold last year to the parent company of Festival. They don't strike me as the kind of folks who are going to push the whole thing to the Consumer Product Safety Division, uh, Commission right. that the founder of SawStop was trying to push it through as sort of a mandate. Um, right. I don't. I think there may be they'll, they'll continue to offer those things. It'll be an option, but you know, unless something really changes with the uh, the government, that's not ever going to be required. Right. Um, right. So, is there any kind of tool that you think has had the biggest impact on the building or remodeling industry that? just kind of in a general sense has been like a game changer more than any other one. Uh, interesting. You use the word impact. I would say impact drivers. Okay. <laughs> um, those things have been, the first time I saw one was maybe 20 years ago and it was a real oddity. Um, I remember when I was at tools of the trade, we used to do surveys, like what tools do you own? You know, we get seven eight hundred right. guys, you know, would check off the box. I own this, I don't own that. I wish I'd had, I wish I'd been able to do that 20 years ago because I can pretty much guarantee almost no one would have owned a cordless impact driver. Nowadays, right. almost as many people have those as this have drill driver. Right. Um, and they're just a fantastic thing because people can put things in with screw type fasteners, you know, yep. bolts, you name it, um, you know, that they might have done some other way in the past. And I think they're a lot safer to use than, say, um, driving something with a drill driver. You know, if you're putting something in hard and you're you're having to lock out the clutch, you know, the things have got reaction, can twist and throw you off a ladder, impact driver, you can put a gigantic in, you know, and it's not gonna kick back on you. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I put in some some pretty major uh screws 
uh, into some pretty major pieces of lumber with an impact driver that just surprised me that how easily it went through. So I had, sure. a, I had a question. I have a question about big box versus general manufacturer. And it's been my impression over the years that just because you can buy a tool at a big box store, it doesn't mean it's the same tool as what you'd buy straight from the manufacturer. Do you have any feedback on that? I'm not here to badmouth anybody, but it just strikes me that uh, there may be a difference between buying an X brand tool at a big box store versus X brand tool from somebody who handles that as a brand. I mean, if the, my understanding is, and I've heard this, I remember hearing this 20 years ago, uh, yeah. somebody telling me, telling me this, who is a, you know, an, an industrial supplier type guy. Um, and I asked the tool company about it and they said, you know, I think this was when DeWalt first came out. They were starting to okay. sell them in a yellow and they still yeah. had black and Decker industrial and the uh, distributor had black and Decker industrial and the big box store had DeWalt. I asked DeWalt and they said that the same tool, one of them's got gray plastic, one of them's yellow. Okay. Uh, the industrial supplier guy was saying this has got better bearings and brushes, blah, blah, blah. I mean, right. I can understand his. I can understand him wanting to do that. He's going to get undercut pretty badly by a big box. Sure. But I think if it's got the same model number, it's the same tool. Okay. Wow. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Cause I've, you know, again, I think I heard the same stories over and over again. And, you know, sometimes it's just hard to sort that sort of thing out when you're, you know, going to try to decide between $300 and two fifty. you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to know sure. which right. So. Yeah. I mean, for the contractor, I guess, you know, there may be some value in going where you've got a relationship with somebody. Right. Um, right. You know, they do repairs or something, but you know, that's obviously dollars and cents. That's sort of a hard one to uh, know exactly what to do. Indeed. Sure. Knowing sure. that uh, most of the tools are owned by a parent company, how can you, how do you know that, um, you know, you're getting a different tool when you're paying more money if it's from the same company? I think, it, again, it's going to be model number. If the model numbers, almost always. I've known of a couple instances where tool tool companies changed. Uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but there's a particular nail gun manufacturer that had a fairly popular 20 years ago 15-gauge um, finish nailer. Uh, and they when they switched their production to China, they had a totally different tool with the same model number. Usually that doesn't happen. Right. So, Steve, which uh, what what's like the tool that that revolutionized your business? Um, I would probably say going to the cordless impact driver. I mean, that was a huge deal, uh, especially with putting in. I was snapping screws all over the time when going sure. into harder wood, uh, but that was huge for me. Obviously, when I uh, started to upgrade my tools uh, from you know a, a <laughs> homeowner brand. Uh, right. And um, obviously anything pneumatic was a big deal. Yeah, I think for me, the revolution was the the oscillating uh, saw that everybody calls a fine tool, but it's not a fine oh, tool. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. I think that really changed the world for me, trying to cut little pieces and stuff like that. So that's kind of my, my go-to when someone says, uh, what tool do you like the most? So, David, any little uh, nuggets you could give us here about tools or uh, advice for us as we start to wind this down? No, but I, I think we did. I don't know that I've got any nuggets about what somebody should buy or look for, because I think most people, 
you know, been using tools for a while, I got a pretty good sense of, you know, who the brands are. Right. Uh, one thing I would look at, and I don't think I mentioned it before when you're talking about things that uh, changed a lot, organization. You know, you got a lot of people have got a lot of tools and they got them thrown in a bunch of drywall buckets. Or, oh, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I don't know how you are about this, but I'll see a truck going down the road and they've got like a bunch of lumber and a saw upside down on back and stuff getting rained on. It just, it leaves me with a bad taste. Right. Um, and I, one of the things I really like that I've seen in recent years were all of these modular toolboxes. Um, the first ones anybody ever saw were all the uh, Festool sustainers. Which, you mm -hmm. know, yep. You're buying a really expensive tool. You better get a nice case. But you can buy, uh, DeWalt makes a few different levels of these things. Uh, Milwaukee does. Bosch. There's a lot of brands out there. And it's a way to, like, whatever you've got, you can keep the accessories and the tool together and you can transport them easily. And I've seen a lot of guys who've done some really cool outfitting in the back of a van or a truck. Yeah. Yes. Know, so they can hide these things out, put them on a dolly, sometimes a purpose-made dolly, roll them in, and they got everything there. Yeah. You know, you can waste a lot of time rooting around for stuff you can't find. Yes, thank you. That is that is the nugget for me of the day. And I, I really appreciate that because we often don't think about the accessibility of tools or the um, handling of tools mm -hmm. as much as we, you know, kind of marvel at the beauty of the tool itself. So that, yeah. that's incredible. That's fantastic. And let me post a question to both Tim and Dave. You say that, you know, when you've got a crew and you need them to be efficient, when you hire a lead carpenter, he's going to have a certain set of tools. How can a company make sure that they're organized correctly or, or is that in the company's uh, responsibility or best interest to do that. I guess that goes into the question of buying their own vehicle, but uh, how can you kind of control that, you know, giving allowances for tools, making them own a certain type or amount of tools? Is there a checklist? How do com most companies do that? Uh, well, I, I would say that most companies don't. Most companies allow carpenters to have their own tools and handle them the best way they can. Um, so I know companies are giving out tool allowances to help uh, supplement tools particularly, and so people can upgrade their tools. That's a, a good way to do that. I think that also helps in terms of some taxable income for the company. So it's a, a benefit across the board. But I think in general, companies are saying, you know, you have your own tools, bring them, take care of them, and uh, we'll help out if we can. Dave, you have an idea? Well, I think that's a very hard one to enforce. I think that's more a matter of who you hire. Um, I used to hire carpenters for a company I worked for at one time, and I'd we'd be talking inside the company's office. They'd say, hey, is your truck out there? Can I go up and look at it? You know, you see guys with chisels all notched out and beat and paint all over them. Uh, you know, okay, that told me he was probably not the finished carpenter he said he was. And, and I think it's more a matter of com company culture. It's, I think that's a hard one to, to enforce, yeah. you know, outside of being in a factory or something. Yeah. Well, Dave, thanks again for being on the show again today. Please check back soon so uh, we can have another talk about tools. I know Tim enjoys it. Definitely. Great. Well, good talking to you guys. Thank you, David. So, Tim, uh, let's go back to what did we learn today? What was your favorite part of the day, part of the interview? Uh, it has to be what I got all excited about there at the end is just the organization of tools. This is something that I talk about with uh, companies on a regular basis. How do you cut just a few minutes or a few 
maybe 15 minutes out of your day. And an awful lot of it can come right down to the organization of your tools and the condition of your tools. And I think David just hit it right on the head that there are boxes, there are systems for organizing tools. And I, I just love that comment. And it, and it just came right out of the blue. So I, I guess I got excited about that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that is night and day when you look at a really good carpenter, how they have their tools aligned and organized, you know, how their truck is set up. It makes it so they can go back and forth. They're set up quick in the morning, break down quick, but every, everything goes back in its place. It pays dividends across the board. So the other thing that is kind of exciting to me, which probably doesn't have a lot to do with our listeners, but now I have an answer for why skill saws are different on either side of the country. And, <laughs> has you know, that been, and that's just, has that's that been just keeping you up things. at night? You know, I go to California <laughs> and Washington and Oregon a lot. And, and that conversation always takes place. And now I've got the reason why now I know why. So that's exciting for me as well. Good. Well, once again, we really want to thank Dave Frain for joining us. And thank you for listening to another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. Remember, we're helping the bottom line through production training. This has been another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.